America. My name is Armio Sifrimpong, and I come to you live every Thursday. And I also do a Monday show where I talk about kind of relationship issues, and I call it free game because I'm giving you a little bit of game. And today we're going to talk about blackmail vulnerability to violence. And we see that, for example, when you're choked out um, on a New York uh, subway station, or, you know, a few years ago, as, uh, as Oscar tased in, in, in an Oakland uh, um, station, and just blackmail vulnerability to violence, and a particular kind of violence that is attracted to black males because they're both black and male, right? So there'll be 200 and some odd in 2015, there's like 215 black guys killed by the police and, and 17 black women. And so it's not just that they were black that they were targeted for this kind of uh, police-involved murder. It was that they were both black and male. But what I want to talk about and kind of focus in on is the just number of black men who are subjected to like state control and violent control. That means being arrested because they're both black and male. You, you never know who's been arrested if they're black, because black men who've been arrested look like everybody else. White guys who've been arrested, they probably did something. Black guys have been arrested just because they just made someone feel a certain sort of way. I was talking to a cat uh, before, and he got arrested because his girlfriend just thought she ran the cops. This is especially, and I'll say this, this is especially dangerous if you're, if you're dating white women, if you're a black guy dating white women, because white women don't know um, don't know what they don't know. So, they, so, so this guy's girlfriend thought that she owned the cops. So he wanted to leave. And so she called the cops as he was packing his stuff to go under the understanding that the cops were going to come there and keep him there. Because it, it was about like the cops just working for her in general with regard to the black body because the black body is something that the black male body is something that you can call the authorities on and get to do whatever you want to do. I wouldn't be surprised if she called him to make her have sex with him, right? God, so the black male body is a body that is under institutional control that is overdetermined by society. And we think, well, there's no, they can't, that's just black violence. It's not, can't just be black male violence. And I was like, well, there's a different kind of violence that attracts itself to men and women um to black men and black women right and like women weren't lynched like black men are because racial animus is primarily primarily male on male right racial animus is about who gets to control the society and for a lot of and for you know a lot of our culture society is controlled by men while women take care of the house and men tame society for the house and then when you let women outside of the house you got to tame all of society um for the women who are now emancipated for the house from the house so um racial animus is primarily for reasons both good and bad a male-on-male -male thing people don't think of when they think of the evilness of whites they don't think of white women they think of white men when they think of like the worst characteristics of black people they don't think about um them being realized by black women they think of black men so it's there's a peculiar kind of vulnerability that attracts to black men because they're both black and men there's a peculiar kind of invisibility that attracts to black women which you know kimberly crenshaw and the intersectional theorists will talk about at length but there's a there's also a peculiar kind of vulnerability that attracts to black men and you can say that well you know men are stronger than women so it can't be really it can't be a vulnerability to violence and this isn't 30,000 years or 3,000 years ago where that kind of strength 
really matters. Like we've domesticated the world. So real strength is institutional strength. It's not what you can do with your arms. It's what you can do with a forklift. It's what you can do with a cell phone, who you can call violence on. And if you're more scared, if you give two people a cell phone and say like, who can call the most amount of violence? Who can summon the most amount of violence in a, in a 20 minute time on the other person? Black men can't summon too much violence with a cell phone like relative to, to black women and especially not relative to, to, to white women or white men, right? So the quality of vulnerability we're talking to that attaches itself to black maleness isn't necessarily strength of arms because when when a society with strength of arms doesn't really matter. It doesn't call legitimate violence in the same way that strength of like institutional power, like the ability to call the police, the ability to get someone fired. That's what real power is. And that's what real violence is. The ability to call the legitimate arm of violence onto the area Negro who is, um, who is bothering you for some sort of way. So there's a peculiar kind of, 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 of violence that's attached to black men. Now it's possible that Neely would have been uh, choked out if he were a white woman. It's possible that he would have been choked out if he were a black woman. It's possible that he would have been choked out if he were a white guy. But it's not that surprising that he was choked out as a black man. <laughs> right? It's not that surprising that he was killed as a black man because we're just, and that's, a, that's not even institutional violence. That was um, extrajudicial violence. Right? And in, uh, in Jim Sedanus's, in Jim Sedanus's um, uh, social dominance, he goes through the difference between legitimate and quasi-legitimate violence um, and semi-legitimate violence and the Klan and, you know, the vigilantes that will just uh, predictably police black bodies and overdetermine their actions in, in space uh, is part of American culture. That's part of what it is to be American culture. By the way, the, before I, I go too far, I'm going to hit the beginning, but I want to give credit to credit due. And this, a lot of this comes and clarified my thought um, through Tommy Curry. Tommy Curry's book, The Man Not, goes through this in really like sharp detail. And you could spend, like I might spend a good chunk of my, the rest of my life just going through different arguments from that book. So Tommy J. Curry, um, Tommy Curry, Dr. Tommy Curry, the philosophy professor over at the University of Edinburgh, but he's from Lake Charles, Louisiana, just a regular poor black guy um, from a regular just working class black family. He always jokes about like, he's like two generations away from illiteracy. Uh, but he ended up like just working and reading um, and working and like, so if you're interested in what I say, and he's a pretty generous intellect and mind, so you can just Google some of Tommy uh, Curry's work on YouTube or go and buy The Man Not, and he talks about black male vulnerability. Black male vulnerability, because a lot of people think, well, if you're male, you just get black vulnerability, but it's mitigated by the fact that you're male. It's by, your, by the fact that you're male. And Tommy Curry actually details why it's not actually mitigated by your maleness. It's increased and differentiated. So black women are subject to some sort of vulnerability and invisibility. Black males are subject to a particular kind of institutional violence because of their blackness and their maleness. It doesn't lessen, their maleness doesn't lessen, lessen the violence, it actually intensifies the violence, which is, you know, black women don't make 
people as nervous as black men in the same way, especially black black men. Black men over like 6'2", I think they got to like make themselves small in a way I find unbecoming. I am not over 6'2", so that's not really my thing. But I've, I've been in rooms, especially in the professional class, in the white collar class, where big black men, you know, try hard not to intimidate everyone in the room just with like being who they are. And that I think is unfortunate because they understand their vulnerability as certain sized black men, right? So there's such a thing as black male vulnerability that people don't talk about. And like the number of black men who've just been arrested. Oh, I have the, I have the book right here. Good. So this is the book, The Man Not, Tommy Curry. I'm going to hit the, uh, I'm going to hit the beat and we'll talk a little bit more about black male vulnerability. For the world or the government If it was the president Then I would state facts You leave it up to me I paint the White House Black and it can feature in your front Once again, this is the book by Dr. Tommy Curry. And if you appreciate anything I do, go ahead and go to www.bunkyacademic.com and kick in $5.15 or $50 a month because if for no other reason, I'm the one who told you about this book and about the man, Tommy Curry. And after this, go ahead and, and, and Google and put his name in YouTube. Um, so I'm just going to read on page... 29. Black male vulnerability is the term I use to capture the disadvantages that black males endure compared to other groups. The erasure of black males' actual lived experience from theory and the violence and death black males suffer in society. Also notice, and the middle part often gets left, black males aren't allowed to talk about black male vulnerability and the peculiar kind of vulnerability they are... Um, they are subject to as both being black and male. They can be the objects of other people's advocacy. You see BLM, for example, uh, you know, was, was turned, started out with a black man getting shot and then turned into a movement led by queer black women, which is fine. I, I'm fine with queer black women um, leading their things, but to the exclusion of black men. And if you talk to anyone, black men weren't allowed they really weren't allowed in the space and still being respectful. If we took up too much space, it would be misogynist. Or if we tried to narrow the movement to like, all right, let's talk about, you know, the situations that create destitution among black men, the homelessness, the morbidity, the mortality rates, then we weren't being appropriately inclusive, right? So black men aren't allowed to actually theorize their own vulnerability or talk about it as such. And I think that's a problem for us understanding our situation and you have to understand a few things racial animus conventionally and traditionally is men against other men uh men fighting for other men for resources and access to women um uh and that's carrying the markers of the race both good and bad markers of the race and that's like not that hasn't worked out very well for black men. They're very vulnerable insofar as anti-black racism is in a heightened way, anti-black male racism. Now black women get it too. And I'm not going to tell you that black women don't get it, but um, there's a peculiar kind of vulnerability that black men are subject to because of their blackness and their maleness. That's different than the peculiar kind of vulnerability that black women are subject to because of their blackness and 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 femaleness right 
So I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about how it's institutionalized. And you see it just when you just the number of regular black guys who have had the cops called on them. The number of everyday black guys is regular, regular black guys, even like soft-spoken, like relatively like calm black guys who have for some reason or another been under police control, have been like violently subjugated by the state because someone pointed at them. Um, and then the pressure, and that, that also like redounds to the pressure black people feel to not be intimidating. I gave up on that pressure. I just, I, I, you know, it's, it's a full-time job. I think it was bad for my team. It was definitely bad for my work because you can't be a, a philosopher who's serious and also spend your whole life um, coddling white feelings because, you know, being serious and, and truthful is a habit and you need to <clears throat> practice that habit. And if you're practicing a different habit, then when it's time to be serious and truthful, you can't just turn on the switch because you have, you've had so many habits of like being, you know, accommodating yourself to like white comfort. So by the way, if you appreciate what I'm doing, and I think you should go to www.funkyacademic.com, kick in five, 15 or $50 because it's not, there aren't too many Negroes, unfortunately, in these United States who have accumulated so many years of being truthful about the situation of black people um, without caring about white feelings. And so you're, 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 you're benefiting from all the experience I, I put in. And there's always uh, the joke about the plumber who comes in and fixes a problem in, in five minutes and, uh, and then charges you $300. And, and the question is, well, why do you get to only charge me $300 if, you, if it only took you five minutes? And it's like, well, it took me you know, a few years to figure out what the problem is <laughs> so that I can put in my five minutes and do it right. If you try to do it, and I know because I've tried some plumbing, there'll be more leaks at the end than when it started. So you're benefiting from my accumulated wisdom. You're welcome. If you want to say thank you, which I think you should, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com, kick in $5, $15, $50 and a month, and I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Talking about relationships on Monday, politics on Thursday, and with respect to relationships, just understand you're vulnerable. So like, so you're vulnerable to anyone who wants, because anyone who wants to talk anything bad about you. You just have to understand that you're just going to, people are just going to assume that you did it. Everyone's going to be more sympathetic than you. Um, and you're not allowed to talk about it because black men should be objects of other people's study. They can't talk about it themselves. <laughs> right? So like, just assume that if you break up all of anyone who's talking to your girlfriend, fiance or, or wife, uh, um, ex-wife is going to just assume the worst of you, just assume you're an abuser. I always just go around assuming that everybody did it. It used to, like, it bothered me a little bit in the beginning when people thought I was a misogynist. Then I realized there's no real way out of it, so I just kind of own it. I'm one of those misogynists who apparently likes women because I, like, support them when I can because I think it's cool to support women and their people. But if, like, I'm not going to spend all of my time trying to prove that I'm not a misogynist, that's just too much work. And I think it gets in front of truth. And it drains my chi. And I don't, I don't want to do that to the people. So if you want to know more about black male, black male, uh, both black male misandry, which is just um, a hatred of black men, but also the peculiar kinds of vulnerability that black males face as not just black, but males. Because they're not really men. And that's why he calls them man knots. They're not really men, because men protect and provide and are patriarchal jerks. And it turns out that black men aren't that. 
And sometimes we get in trouble for being that. A lot of black men have been divorced. A lot of black men have divorced because they marry people who don't really know that the, whose wives expect them to not just behave, but secure the perks of being white guys. And black guys aren't white guys. Like he says, the, and black guys even aren't frustrated white guys. They're just a different kind of male, a different kind of male. Because uh, like these gender scripts are historical products. And so black masculinity is just fundamentally different and like progressive in ways. Um, and, you know, Curry goes into that. And Curry goes into that. And he quotes Staples and to, 20, and to a certain extent working class guys in general. But um, I'm going to read page 21. Staples maintains that the economic and political isolation of black men and boys gave them more egalitarian views of sex because you had to somehow... Um, you had to somehow deal with the data that said, you know, black men have more egalitarian views about sex, more egalitarian behaviors about sex. Um, and why is that the case? Well, it's because they understand their masculinity as both distinct and um, in response to not a mimetic um, aspiration towards, but a distinct response to a white masculinity so it's a different kind of masculinity everything black, like black men don't do a lot like white men and w women will say like well you know black men are just like white men until they actually sleep with one and then they're like well, okay well in the bedroom they're much different because in the bedroom we're much different and like we're just because we're different animals like it's a different different historical projects and it's not just in the bedroom because of natural endowment it's in the bedroom because we actually care about women <laughs> um whereas white guys you know they just are Maybe not that thoughtful. All right, so it is generally conceded that black men do not have the power to enact patriarchy to the extent that white men do. Everyone says that. But this structural limitation is rarely connected to or thought of as a reason that black men would formulate altogether different notions of manhood that resist gender hierarchies, not only in the home, but also in larger society. All right. Black men, and Tommy has this, you know, he's got, he brings the footnotes, because if you do race, workshop that means you need to uh, you, if you do race scholarship you need to over footnote everything <laughs> because people want to say like well that's not what i see on tv because tv is owned by the whites we don't own the black voice by the way that's going to be my thursday show about how we don't own the white uh, we don't own the black voice and the naacp kind of admitted that we don't own the black voice because they only have image <laughs> image awards they don't have ideas awards they have image awards and but it's arguably that we don't even own the black image and that's just that's just sad we don't we own neither the idea nor the image black people of black people in in these united states but i'll go back to reading black men are by far by far the most liberal sex race grouping in america okay um they start dating earlier have the most liberal sexual attitudes and are most inclined to have non-marital sex without commitment or ownership or this feeling of property um so yeah and you don't want to admit that and the people who don't want to admit that haven't dated either other dudes or don't know what it's like to be with like a possessive girlfriend it turns out black men are not possessive in the same way it's like when we don't own we have a history of being owned so we're least likely to think of you as like as like, as as us owning you we expect respect but not like you're a piece of property to us because we don't hold people as property because we were held as property and we've historically understood a, a formulation of maleness that is distinct from white maleness all right so 
Within the institution of marriage, I'm going back to reading, black men are more involved than other males in doing housework, tending to their children, and sharing decision-making with their female counterpart, counterparts. And once again, this is page 21 of The Man Not. And Tommy's got a footnote to the studies, because when you do black male scholarship, you have to over footnote everything. Recent studies actually show that black male fathers are more involved with their children than men of other races, even when they are not married or living with the mother. So black men who are living um, with the families are more involved than the counterparts who are not living with the families. And then black men who are not living with the families are more involved than their counterparts who are not living with the families. It turns out that the black men are just better fathers. So if you want a good father, have a black man. It's, the unfortunate thing is that there aren't enough, like, there are stressors that cause black relationships to rupture. But if you can hold it down with a black man, it turns out they're excellent fathers. Um, and they practice social fathering to the black community at large in recognition of the structural violence that robs black families and children of black men's presence, generally. Another footnote. Uh, black men are not mimetic. Mimetic just means copying, miming. Um, in the sense that they, imply, they simply base their aspirations and behavior on the precepts established by the larger white society. He's saying black men are not that. Sociologists uh, Anthony Lemuel and Wal Battle, uh, Juan Battle show that in black community, homophobia and homosexuality are equally stigmatized identities. Um, and it is religious participation as well as one's gender rather than masculinity itself that indicate the likelihood that black men or women will be homophobic and express homo negativity. So it's not that black men are homophobic, it's that religion of, is homophobic. So you have to work on that. Not, and, and that means religious women are going to be more homophobic than just regular everyday black men. And later on he talks about like how like any sort of residual homophobia is very plastic insofar as like they were a little bit homophobic because they hadn't like consumed as much media until they met like a gay dude and they're like oh no it's fine it's not so like it's not uh, they don't express homo negativity in the same way so it's religious participation rather than one's gender or rather than or masculinity itself that anticipates black male um uh homophobia and even it's it's not as rooted as 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 you know non-black male homophobia all right, so black males' attitudes concerning sex, love, marriage, and manhood differ itself largely from those of whites. What black men do, how, what, how they actually believe, is more of a sociological than a uh, philosophical point. That's like, this can't be derived out of reason, but it can be explained by using reason if you actually study black males and talk to black males about what they do and why they do it. But the problem is those, the departments don't want to do that. We want to be the, uh, they want black males as being the object of study for someone else who's allowed to theorize about them. Um, but the idea is that they themselves are not thinking things. They're just, you know, hunks of flesh. It is overdetermined by both society and overdetermined by academia. So their actions are overdetermined by society, but, um, and their thoughts and the theorizations of their own actions are overdetermined by academia. They're not, allowed to, they're not allowed to express and be respected for expressing their situation as they come to it themselves. 
Uh, it is precisely how black men and boys live out their perspectives in societies that gives their experience of themselves and the world theoretical um, import. Yeah, so we have this fetish that and this is that was page 21 of the man not i can't talk about this book enough like tell me one of these cats who wanted to write this book before he died so it's 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 real it's real scholarship so you're gonna have to fight through some of the passages but it's worth it and it is the book it is the book it's the most significant book probably like i don't know it might be the most significant book written in my generation um and uh, you could spend, you know, the rest of your life writing books on that book, right? So the idea is that, as it stands, both race scholarship and feminist scholarship is in love with the idea that black men are mimetic. That means they try to copy white masculinity, but since they can't, they're just frustrated white men. But it turns out that there are very good reasons that actually explain the data that says black men are actually not frustrated white men. They are a different kind of men. They are a historically developed notion of masculinity that's developed in response to like the degradations that's heaped upon them by the whites, right? Um, so we need to talk about black male vulnerability, how they can't, they're not allowed to talk about themselves, think about themselves, and how their violence is always um, interpreted for them as opposed to like we look at what they say about it and then uh, the situations they felt and how easy it is to call upon institutional violence on black men it's very easy to call upon institutional violence on black men getting a black man fired is really easy getting a black man arrested is really easy that's why you see every day black men who have a story about that time they were arrested and being arrested is traumatic we just kind of deal with the trauma and don't talk about it. But we're not allowed to talk about it because some people are going to look at this title, even the title of the video, and think, well, this is just some soft Negro. And I'm just saying, well, you know, I'm going to risk, I'm going to risk it because black men need to talk about it. Black men need to talk about it. We need to talk about being arrested is, is, is traumatic and you shouldn't just sick that on people. But yet, but yet, we're peculiar, peculiarly, um, uh, vulnerable to those kinds of institutional harms and we live in a world that's been remade by modern institutions so real harm is institutional it's not about strength of arms it's about like what you can do just like real strength isn't about what you can lift with the arms it's what you can lift with a forklift right we don't build things by hand we use machines now we don't we don't meet out violence by arms by by fists anymore we use it by like pointing and clicking right we 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 sick violence we sick professional violence peoples on on the negroes on the area negroes oh we use wildcat violence by vigilantes right so um we're not honest about what violence looks like in a ma in a in a modern in a modern world and we're not honest about like who's really vulnerable to violence or who's also vulnerable to violence i'm not saying that that black women um aren't also vulnerable to violence. I'm not saying that women are vulnerable to violence. I'm saying that black men are vulnerable to violence too in a different way because it is so easy to call upon the full faith of both culture and the state, both the state and society to um, private security and public state can, can uh, will believe anything wrong about black men and will, use, will feel very comfortable um, 
and be culturally supported in violently policing them. Right? And that's what explains the just incidents of black men in and out of the criminal justice system. The random, the random good black men who've just been arrested and then like in a catch and release type of way just because they made some white person feel some sort of way. I made some black person feel some sort of way. And, you know, people have... Being good is a skill, and if you're not taught how to be good, you're probably taught how to be bad, and one way to be bad is to just call the cops on a Negro just because you feel like it, all right? So, um, thank you for your time. If you appreciate what I'm doing, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com, kick in $5, $15, or $50, and I'll be back on Thursday talking about something completely different. Bye.